and welcome to the Peace Love Plants podcast. I'm your host, Marco Knox. My guest this week is a long-distance cyclist. His second longest journey to date, San Diego to Jacksonville, Florida. That very ride was being mapped long before Mr. Mike Cohen took his first pedal stroke. You see, before he started laying down big mileage, Mike had to beat an aggressive form of leukemia to become a cancer survivor. Then he had to overcome two heart failures to become a heart attack survivor. Then he had to live with an LVAD to become an LVAD survivor. And then he had to undergo a heart transplant to become a heart transplant recipient, all before he became a long-distance cyclist. His story is gripping and one that will leave you living your life out loud, all while being unapologetically yourself. I sincerely hope that you enjoy my conversation with Mr. Mike Cohen in this episode titled, Never Give Up. Mike Cohen, welcome to the Peace Love Plants podcast, my friend. How is life? Life's good. It's adapted. It's interesting, but I'm alive. I'm healthy and can't complain. I won't. (laughs) No doubt. You are alive. And I'm really excited to share that story. It's incredible. So thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Let's set the stage here. We're going to discuss your onsporing life story. And let me just say, when I first heard your story, I honestly sat in silence for what felt like hours, simply trying to wrap my mind around what you've been through, what it must have been like, all while feeling complete admiration for the way you handled it. It just seems like you dealt with this whole thing with extreme gratitude and grace. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) It's been an interesting path and I'm more than honored to be able to share it with you and your listeners. And, you know, I really hope that whoever's listening is able to get from me sharing my story, just simply like how simple and how quick life could change and how quick it is to figure out what your path is. You know, we all have our own paths and I thought I had a path and everything changed completely out of my control. So I just hope that that's a major piece that everybody gets from this. I'm sure they will. I'm really positive of that. So let's start here. Let's go all the way back. You were born and raised in New York, right? Mm -hmm. Born and raised in Canarsie, Brooklyn. Yep. So what was it like growing up in the Northeast? Uh, Northeast. So, all right, so I'm 35. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, multi-generation Brooklyn New York City family, um, both sides, my mom's side, my dad's side. And growing up in Canarsie, I you know, went to public school, grew up on the block, playing sports with my friends, all my neighbors, and playing tons of after-school activities, lots of baseball, lots of basketball, soccer. It was funny, like my first baseball team, I actually played on a, I think it was a basketball court, because where I was really didn't have that many options for Little League fields as they do suburbs and now San Diego. I'm like, man, if I had this when I was younger, I'd be professional. (laughs) I mean, sliding into home plate with no grass just because you're a kid and you want to make sure that you're safe doesn't feel good after you do it. (laughs) It was a great experience. It really taught me a lot about culture. It influenced my decision of using my culture, having a Jewish background and Eastern European and just a lot of cooking, a lot of family focused activities, like really spent a lot of time with friends and family and going to school in the city. You just meet a lot of different people, a lot of different cultures, a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different religions. And I feel it really grows you up pretty quickly living in the city and learning how to be independent and understanding what it's like to at least pursue success, at least what we're told when you're growing up in Brooklyn or the city. (laughs) 
It sounds like a cultured background, lots of diversity and things like that. It's not for everybody. Like, I'll be honest, like where I'm at now and looking back where I was, I prefer where I'm at now than where I was. But I appreciate where I was to say that I have experienced that, to be able to say, I don't want that. And I really like what I have now. Yeah, it's part of the foundation. I grew up in Detroit, so I can relate to that big city colder environment feel. I'm down in Florida now. You're obviously in the Southern California. So let's start shaping this story here. It's now it's 2004. You're 18 years old. I imagine fresh out of school and ready to take on life. What aspirations did you have at the time? Uh, So going back to the precursor, I had a terrible stuttering problem when I was younger. Like I would say from the age of before middle school, I would say even elementary school, I just, I don't even know if it was a stuttering problem. It was just, I wasn't able to properly time myself when I know that I needed to speak, I wouldn't breathe properly. So it would look like I would be getting stuck, but reality is I was just gasping for air. I couldn't speak. So my mouth would be like gaping wide open and no words would come out. But I would get constantly made fun of that. Like it took a lot of time to figure out who and what I wanted to do because like my stuttering or my speech problem was such a influential part of my life that it made me choose what I was going to do in college around like, I hope I didn't have to do presentations. I didn't want to have to stand in front of people and say a word because I was afraid of being made fun of. So I decided to take a vocational culinary program at my high school and I was really good. Like I competed, I did really well. I got a scholarship to a culinary school at the time and I just pursued food. I'd been like, you know what, let me let my cooking, let me let my plating and all of what I do in the kitchen, represent my voice, be my voice, and we'll see what happens from there. And I graduated in 2003 and just had a normal summer after high school, getting ready for my first semester in college or culinary school. I would call it college, but it's culinary school. So I would go to a culinary school in the city, New York City, and I would go from the Long Island Railroad because I was living in Long Island at the time. And I just remember one day I didn't have class. I was walking to work. It was snowing. You know what that is. <laughs> I just had some phlegm and I spit it up and it was covered in blood. So I was walking to work. So I continued walking to work with just a couple of minutes from my house. And my boss saw that I had blood all over my shirt. He's like, dude, what's going on? And he's like, you should probably go home. You don't feel well. Let's make sure you're not going to get worse and go take care of yourself. So I went home. My dad was the only person in the house besides me that drove. So we actually ended up waiting. I ended up going home going back to sleep. My mom gave me tea and my dad wasn't home yet. My dad worked two jobs and at the time he was not home. So I remember waking up in the middle of the night in excruciating, screaming on the top of my lungs pain. I thought I was having a heart attack and my dad was home at the time. He ran upstairs. He picked me up. I'm 18, so I'm not, (laughs) I'm not tiny. (laughs) And he just picked me up down the stairs and we went to the local ER And when we got to the local ER, there was a stretcher waiting outside because we called as we were in route, but we didn't know what was going on. So as soon as we got there, they put me in a stretcher, they rushed me into the ER, and then they just started immediately doing tests and stuff. And they jabbed me in the arm with a shot. They said that you're not going to feel pain anymore. I didn't. I'm like, all right, time to go home. And then the last thing I remember before passing out was something about cancer or leukemia. Or no, I'm sorry, at the time it was lymphoma. So at that point, being 18, I had recently lost my grandmother to cancer that previous September. And then I think a couple of years before that, I lost my grandmother and my grandfather from cancer. So cancer in our family was extremely sensitive. It just was 
unfortunately a very common experience that we had within our family. So I was extremely sensitive even to just saying or hearing the word. And then that morning I woke up and I just remember looking up in white light, <laughs> trying to move and couldn't because I had IVs all over the place. I had life support. I had breathing tube. I had IVs in both arms. And my mom was laying at the foot of my bed and she saw that I was up and she woke up and I'm like, what's going on? I'm like, was that a nightmare? <laughs> and she's like, no, she's like, you have cancer. And yeah. So when she told me that, like <laughs> my first reaction as an 18 year old college kid was like, what about school? I have school on Monday. <laughs> I have work tomorrow morning. And she's like, well, you know, you can't do that anymore. You can't go to school anymore. You can't work anymore. All you're going to do is focus on is going and fighting this cancer. And then my dad walked in, my brother walked in, and then everything really, really hit and really set into my mind that this is, everybody was crying. My mom was upset. My dad was punching walls. My brother was 14, so he really wasn't too keen on what was going on, but he saw everything else was going on, so he definitely was concerned as well. And from that point, I was transferred to a different hospital, more of a cancer-specific hospital, about like 30 minutes away from where we were. Still pretty close to where I was living at the time, but a little further, and they were more cancer-specific. They were going to specifically treat me. That was where I was going to fully have whatever chemotherapy, radiation, cancer-related treatments would be through them, and that's where we were transferred. Who actually broke the news to you? Was it your mom and she told you what kind of cancer you had been diagnosed with? No. So unfortunately at that point, since it was just like a local hospital. They didn't know? Yeah. Like they knew it was cancer, but they didn't know specifics. So that's why they wanted to make sure I was taken care of by the right people, the right qualified location. So she broke the news about cancer, but the specifics was because originally when I was at the original hospital, they thought it was lymphoma. And then when I was transferred, they eventually diagnosed me with leukemia, which what I ended up being diagnosed with was called acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So for sure it was ALL, and that is the cancer of the bone marrow. Lymphoma, I think, is the white blood cells. I'm not sure about that. It's been a long time since cancer has been a conversation in my head besides why, but leukemia is the cancer of the bone marrow. So it's within the bones. The protocol of treating that is chemotherapy for two and a half years, Every day for six weeks with like, I think a week, maybe sometimes two weeks off in between just to give your body a break. But every six weeks would be a different protocol. So one would be oral, one would be like a push chemotherapy drug that they just put in an IV, goes straight in and you leave. Some are seven, eight hour drips. Also, I had to use some spinal tap infusions because where the cancer cells for ALL, a lot of times they would just hide in the spinal column. So they would actually have to perform a spinal column and inject chemotherapy into my spine. And then what else did I have? I had bone marrow biopsies, which they have to insert a very, very thick needle into your hip to be able to extract to see what level of cancer you still have or not. And I went through this protocol for about two and a half years from the age of 18. And I finished my treatments around right before my 21st birthday. Wow. So you're living in New York at the time of the diagnosis and through most of the treatments. However, you ended up moving to San Diego. Now, I've moved across the country twice, Mike, and it's no small feat when you're completely healthy. It must have been an incredibly difficult task to try to manage a cross-country move. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a big reason for it. So I guess to kind of go back a little bit, during the time of my cancer diagnosis from 18 to 21, at the age of 19, I, yeah, 19 or 20, I had a dry cough. 
And what ended up happening was I went to the ER just to get checked out. At that time, when you have cancer and you have anything wrong, you just go straight to the ER. You don't really care. And they usually know you, so you go in pretty quick. You know, I'm 18, 19. They're not going to make me wait for someone who has a broken arm. I go straight in. They need to have me seen immediately. And so eventually they diagnosed the cough. I thought I was fine. Felt fine. Like this is at a part in my recovery where I was actually like working out. I was running, starting to get active, feeling at least what I thought was better. And it turned out that I had several blood clots in my lungs and I had congestive heart failure and I had pneumonia. So I had congestive heart failure, pulmonary embolism, which were the clots in my lungs and pneumonia. And this is separate from the chemotherapy. So what happened was my, with the chemotherapy, which they told me disclaiming, which is interesting, fast forward very far, that the chemo could potentially have damaging effects on the heart. So I experienced that. I had the blood clots. I mean, the chemo was aggressive because, you know, I was right on the cusp of being an adult and or an adolescent kid, I guess you'd say. So my treatments were pretty strong and it just, it wrecked my heart then. And all of this, all of these factors now having to be on blood thinners, now having to go consistently for breathing treatments to hopefully strengthen my lungs and get the lungs to the point before or even better when there was couple clots in there. I decided I wanted to go to a climate that was warmer. So when I was able to transfer, because I was going to a school that had multiple schools in their network, I was able to transfer to whatever college I wanted to go. So I went to Florida. You know, I checked out a couple schools in Fort Lauderdale and maybe West Palm Beach, something like that. And then I also checked out a couple campuses out in Southern California and we went to Orange County. Then we went to San Diego. As soon as we got into San Diego, I'm like, this is where I want to be. (laughs) It didn't take much. I told my doctors. And so going back to your question about the move, it was my first time driving across country. We flew for the campus visits, but we drove across country. It was always a dream of mine. And I guess to just kind of make it short and sweet, what I ended up finding out later, but I'll just tell now just because it's perfect to the fit, is my mom said that there was no way that they would stop me from going wherever I wanted to go at that point. My entire life up until that point has been dictated by nurses, doctors, and through and through, not an aspect of my life was based upon my choice. So she figured, and my family, I guess, figured that if I'm going to die, I'm going to die where I want to be. Or if I'm going to be in a place, I'd rather be in a place where I would be able to look at every day as a brand new day and not have to see someone that I remember or see someone that I know or see someone that knows about my diagnosis and ask me how you're doing. Not to say that that empathy isn't appreciated, but to constantly be reminded of what you are going through when you're trying to move forward from it, it's very, very hard. And especially from where I was from and where I was diagnosed, like just demographically, it was a very hard challenge to go through what you're going through when people are constantly reminding you of what you're going through. You need a fresh mindset, a fresh environment, some people that don't know, that know you for who you are, not your sickness. Exactly. So so that's what I did. So yeah, so I got out there. They were able to transfer my entire report with one of his colleagues. One of my oncologist colleagues actually went to UCSD at Morris Cancer Center, and that's who ended up finishing up my chemo finishing up my treatments. Like I literally finished chemo like maybe six months after I was out in San Diego. 
So you're in San Diego, you wrap up the treatments. Now, San Diego, by the way, side note, sidebar here, is one of my favorite places. I lived in Northern California for a little while. I have a brother in San Diego, so I would go down to La Jolla, Pacific Beach, that whole area, as much as I could, because I love, it's perfect weather. It's the best climate in the nation. There's tons of outdoor activities. So six months into San Diego, you finish up your chemo treatment, and life begins, right? I mean, you're living life and it's now six years cancer-free. You're feeling good. It's time to celebrate, right? So when I go for a bike ride. That's how it started. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, because I used to run. It was funny. Like in 2009, I did the San Francisco half marathon. Like that was my goal then was like to run, to use activity to just physical anything. Like, I think at the time I had those Nike plus shoes, you know, with the little Nike tablet thing that you put in there to track your stuff before the Apple watch and all that stuff. I'm like, yeah, I want to know what I'm doing. Cause like, I want to get better. I want to improve. So I got really into running and I got into all that cool technology and I ended up just not liking what it did to my legs and my knees and my joints and everything. I ended up getting like, I think it was like a diamondback from Dick's sporting goods, just like a hybrid and just cruising around different parts of San Diego. And I just got to the point where I remember going to, I don't know if you've ever been to the Casbah down here. Yeah. So you know what I'm talking about. It's just like a local venue where they have local shows and stuff. And I remember being a little intoxicated, not going to lie. I was watching Forrest Gump. And in my intoxicated mindset, I'm like, you know what? Like, I think I want to ride across the country. And so I don't know why, but the next day I remember getting a text from my friend who owned his own gym he had a master's in kinesiology and just overall fitness, like just knew everything that needed to be known. And I'm like, could you help me? Like, could you help me get in shape? Like my body's obviously not normal for a 20 year old. Like, I'm sorry. Like my body's 21. Different. You were drinking, right? Mike? 21. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. <laughs> um, like I felt like it was time to do something with this newfound health. And I started training and I started really working more on just functional training at the time, just really getting my body back to normal. Because when you don't know what you're doing training-wise, you're automatically going to lift. And when you lift, you don't necessarily gain mobility and flexibility, what you really need for a sport like cycling or running, which that was what they told you then. But now, like everything obviously incorporates into training. But yeah, so like I asked him for his assistance and he started helping me. And I started riding and eventually led up to my desire to ride from the Moore's Cancer Center, where I finished my chemotherapy treatments to the, well, eventually ended up, because they changed names a million times, the North Shore LIJ Cancer Center where I started my treatments. So like initially I wanted to thank my doctor. I also wanted to give the finger to the cardiologist who told me I wouldn't make it, but he wasn't there. But uh, <laughs> I rode to see my oncologist who initially diagnosed me and it was unbelievable. <laughs> That is a purpose-fueled ride. And, you know, I've talked to a few people on the show that have done cross-country trips, some by foot, some by bike. The common thread in all has said there were moments that it felt like it was an impossible feat. This is too much. But then they had a breakthrough, of course. They all made it. What was your experience like? Did you have moments like that where they're just like, man, I don't know about this. I've made a bad decision. Well, yeah, absolutely. Because my entire prep was not aligned with the routing that we were taking. So... I had my first ride, and this is my fault. I fully take responsibility. My longest ride up to that point was like 45 miles. Day one was 65 and complete climbing. Like you're talking about going from San Diego east, which you go straight into mountains. I don't know for people who are listening who are very familiar with San Diego, but like you're pretty much protected by 
a mountain range from the border as north as you can go. It's not huge or anything, but it's enough that it's not flat. <laughs> and so like my first day was 65 miles of climbing, riding in traffic, significant traffic. First time I've ever did that. Day two was like 75. Day three was 89. Day four was 103. Day five was 113. Day six was 120. My body was messed up. My fit was wrong. The bike was wrong. My cleats were wrong. Um, my helmet was wrong. My like everything was just not right. So I was just going by physicality. And I remember distinctly getting to, I think it was Blythe. So it's, I think it's one of the last cities in California before you get into Arizona. And I remember just throwing the bike down. I'm like, fuck this. <laughs> what am I doing? Like, what am I doing here? Like I just beat cancer and now I'm riding across the country for what? <laughs> and then a couple of curse words and throwing bottles and bikes and, you know, whatever turned into like, okay, like I'm here. Look how far I've come. Let's do this. And I ended up doing 38 days riding. We did 3,168 miles in 38 days. I averaged about 106 miles a day. We took like five days off total and it taught me a ton about cycling. It grew my love for cycling. It changed my view of cycling because now I realize like I don't know anything. <laughs> I need to learn what I'm doing. <laughs> so that was my focus when I was coming back. But once I got to my destination and saw everybody, it was it's not a very often experience that a cancer patient is able to be in the shape to recover to ride across the country. That's a long way. Like I took tip to tip, you know, like San Diego is in deep in the corner <laughs> compared to where New York is. It's far. And I loved it. Like it was life changing, obviously, but I just used my experience with that for anybody who's trying to understand what it's like to have cancer. It's a very similar analogy of the only way you get across the country is step by step, pedal by pedal. You can't make a goal and just expect to get to that goal. So it really taught me a lot about the importance of goals and really to focus on small goals first and then turn them all into big ones. Yeah. I want to back up a second because I'm very familiar with that area, San Diego and all the way to Blythe. And you mentioned the mountains, but what some people might not understand either is Death Valley's there. I mean, it's hot. People think of California and they think of Southern California specifically, ocean and palm trees and cool breeze and perfect climate. But you get into those mountains and you come down those mountains it's Death Valley, and they call it that for a reason. It's tough. So kudos to you to make it through there and then through Arizona and Texas. I mean, all that is just grueling stuff, man, and especially in that amount of time. Yeah, no, we definitely overachieved. So originally, I was organizing everything, and then I realized I needed help. So like, I ended up having a friend of mine, an old friend of mine, who I'm not friends with anymore because of the ride, help me with logistics and stuff. So what I was planning, I already planned. And then when he came on, he changed everything. What I had initially was training for, he changed kind of last minute as schedule needed to change. I mean, I was okay because I'm like, I'm still living my dream. I'm doing what I want to do, but we need to make the proper necessary changes. So we did. But yeah, I mean, exactly like you mentioned, like people don't get it. Like San Diego is a desert climate. It's not tropical paradise. <laughs> like you go from LA South, it is all desert. Sure, it's cooler. Sure, it's perfect weather when you get lucky and there's not an absolutely crazy series of weather-related events. But I mean, it gets hot. I mean, my parents, like right now I'm in Escondido and I try to get my rides in either before a certain time or after a certain time because 95 on the bike is not fun. So It's brutal. Yeah, it is. It is. And that definitely 
was then was the hardest part of the ride besides Texas because Texas is just monotonous. Is you don't realize where you are for like seven days and you're in the same spot. <laughs> <laughs> Did we do this yesterday? <laughs> yeah, like where were we right here before? I thought I saw that same rattlesnake and the dead cow on the side of the road yesterday. <laughs> what was the reception when you finally made it to your destination to see the people that give you your diagnosis, essentially? What was their take on this? Were they in shock? Yeah. So my oncologist is like this little guy. I think he's like maybe five one, five two, very frail. I don't know where he is now. I hope he's doing well. But he was older. And well, they had like the local news there and everything. They were asking questions and they asked him, they're like, so what is it like to have one of your patients ride to you? He's like, going by his diagnosis and coming from as far as he has, he's like, It's like, I've never had this happen before. (laughs) Like I did it with the intention to show them like, look what you've done. Look at what is capable of the right combination of scientists, the right combination of health knowledge, the right combination of humanity and humility, like, and the mindset that goes into both. Like you're not fighting a losing battle. Like there will be stories of people going through treatments like myself that are going to come out of it. And who knows be motivated enough to do something like that I did. Like I did it for myself, of course, but I really wanted it to represent for everybody involved to show what's possible. And yeah, I mean, I haven't spoke with them since, which is definitely unfortunate, but it was such a beautiful experience to see and give them a hug and just to look on the map and see where I was. It definitely made it all worthwhile, for sure. I'm sure it brought a lot of joy to his heart because, I mean, doctors, for the most part, I'd say the majority of them are altruistic human beings. They're in it for the right reasons. They want to see their patients get healthy. So to see someone with your story fight through what you went through to do what you accomplished, to come see him, I'm sure just filled his heart with joy. So that's a beautiful story, and I appreciate you sharing that. Let's back up a little bit, and you touched on it earlier, Mike, and that was when you initially were diagnosed and you had to go through chemotherapy, you knew they told you there could be complications down the road and you experienced that you had the congestive heart failure you started to get a little sick and you fought through that but I imagine in that moment you're like it doesn't matter let's go through with this I want to feel better you know you're young you got a whole life ahead of you in your mind so you're like let's just do this I'll deal with that when it comes down the road and that day kind of comes up let's fast forward to 2017 right you're at home you start feeling chest pains what goes on next (laughs) so let me tell you so like once I finished chemo back in 2007 I just remember saying to myself I'm like okay like I'm in the clear now I'm going to do whatever it takes to stay healthy I'm going to continue doing what I love to do and I'm not going to stop until I die I'm going to live by what I want to do it's not going to be traditional it's not going to be orthodox but it's going to be me it's going to be what I do so I was pursuing that like I continued going to culinary school for a little bit I ended up getting more confidence, ended up not stuttering anymore, and ended up working at the front of the house. So like, really, I forgot about cancer. I mean, I knew I had it. I would have my six-month, eventually one year, eventually two years checkups. But after that, like, I'm like, I'm done. I'm completely in the clear. Yeah, it doesn't define you at this point. Nothing. Like, I had no medication. I had no restrictions. I was flying. I didn't have to wear a mask. At least from what I knew and what I felt, besides chest pains here and there, breaks here and there, normal everyday injuries here and there, I'm like, all right, I'm normal. Everything's fine. And so leading up to 2017, I started finding my career direction in sales. So I don't know if I mentioned before, but like right after the ride, I looked for a job in cycling. I got hired by Specialized just for sales, just for retail. And then I started serving, making some money, but I really started realizing like I really like selling. I like the experience of utilizing my story to help people get to their goals. So I'm like, let me get back in the cycling industry. I ended up getting a job with Trek and 
ended up becoming a top salesperson in the company, top salesperson at all five of the stores I was working at, got a trip to Mexico, got a free button. I mean, got hooked up, like literally fell in love with sales. And I realized I was getting to the point where I was hitting the max. I didn't want to become a manager. I just wanted to keep on selling. And so I started looking elsewhere, like, let me maybe look for a job within cycling that's a little bit better paying, more incentive and so forth. And I ended up getting into the medical marijuana industry, which is interesting because I used cannabis when I was going through chemotherapy in the beginning, when I was really having trouble with nausea, and it saved my life then. And I never forgot that experience. I didn't really use, except when I know that I needed it during that time. It was illegal then, unfortunately, because New York didn't have that law. But out here in California, when I was out here in 2017, to have access to medical marijuana, as long as you had a reasonable reason to have access to it, you could use it, you could sell it, you could work with it and so forth. So I decided, I'm like, I want to take that same experience that I was having selling people bikes and health and pursuing their goals. I'm like, let me maybe help people that are going through health issues and know that they have an alternative to medication because I used it. It worked for me. I would love to be able to tell my story and help other people. So I got a job. I was grinding hard. I was driving up to LA like five days a week. That's a drive, by the way. I love driving too. I love driving. I don't mind it. It's a lot of driving, a lot of traffic, a lot of time in the car, a lot of sitting. Like I thought my body was like run down again. I'm like, maybe I'm doing something wrong, whatever. <sighs> yeah. I mean, then one day I get back from work early. I'm like, let me just make myself a steak. <laughs> I'm going to make myself a steak and mashed potatoes. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> but at the time I'm like, I'm gonna have a steak and mashed potatoes. And like, this is my meal that I usually make when I am by myself Girlfriends at home, or ex-girlfriends at home at the time that don't need to have any other modifications. <laughs> this is my time. I'm relaxing. And so I finished the meal and everything. I threw everything out. And I remember walking back from outside and I started having pain. Like I struggled lifting my arm with the trash bag from the side of my hip into the dumpster. I'm like, what's going on? That's really weird. And then I started noticing the pain getting worse. And then I started getting chest pains. And then I started getting pain in my jaw, the left part of my jaw from like literally from like here to here. It felt like it was a migraine, but like a pounding migraine in my jaw. I literally sat down. I'm like, what is going on? Like I went through like my head. I'm like, do I recognize this? Do I recognize this? Like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what this is. And then it came to me. I'm like, I think I'm having a heart attack. And then I'm like, you know what? I'm going to text my brother and I'm going to text my ex-girlfriend at the time. I'm like, get here immediately without telling him I'm having a heart attack over a text because I couldn't talk. My pain in my jaw was so bad. I could barely open my mouth. So I got myself all prepared like I used to do when I would have to go to the hospital back in the day. I would get sweats on, I would get comfortable clothes, I would make sure my phone was charged. And I was sitting on the couch waiting for them to come. And literally, as I hear the door open, I was like tipping over. But the entire time I was sitting there, I was saying to myself, stay awake, stay awake, do not go to sleep, do not fall over, stay awake. And I was sitting up the entire time. And I remember myself like tipping over, like literally tipping over. My brother caught me picked me up, helped me to the car. And then we rushed to the local hospital. Once we got the triage, immediately said, you are having a heart attack or you're having the symptoms of a heart attack. They got me into a room. Once they got me into a room, everybody's on top of me. I did a quick EKG and it confirmed that I was having a heart attack. So everything was going through there. And then, so everybody was going crazy. My ex-girlfriend was crying. My brother was standing at the foot of the bed and I'm just sitting there like in a really weird position. He looks at me and I'm like, next chapter. I threw in my wallet. I'm like, let's do this. And so then they got me all worked up 
And then they needed to bring me in to get an angiogram, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but for those who don't know, it's just when they insert a camera into your artery and they put a camera all the way into your heart just to see the status of what's going on in your heart. And when they got into my heart, they said that, <laughs> quote by the technician, these are the most beautiful arteries I've ever seen. You would never think that you are having a heart attack with the arteries that I'm looking at right now. Now I'm conscious while they're in my wrist. And then they said, oh, look at that. And it turns out that I had a golf ball sized blood clot in the left ventricle of my heart. So for those of you who are not familiar with heart health, if you make a fist, approximately that's about the size of your heart. If you look at where your thumb is, where your thumb and your pointer finger is, that's about the size of the clot that I had. And that was in the left ventricle. So the left ventricle is the chamber of the heart where the blood goes through to go up to your brain. So I was immediately in stroke watch because if a single piece of that clot broke off, who knows what kind of mental capacity I would have, physical capacity I would have, even if I would even be here, who knows. But that was the last of that I remember that they kept me up. Eventually everything got confirmed. They moved me into ICU. Wasn't allowed to move <laughs> at all. Literally catheter shoved in. Everything, the most fun part of life started at that point in my life. So you're laying there and as you described in your own words, you know, next chapter, and you're kind of assessing on what needs to happen next. What are they saying that they can do? Because I mean, the clot, they obviously are going to try to break it up or thin it out so that your heart can function properly, but they weren't successful in doing that, were they? No. So I had the heart attack on July 25th. And between July 25th and August 4th, I had, let's call it three or four days for them to use a medication that would be able to, like you said, try to dissolve the clot. If that worked, that would be a great, I mean, great. It didn't work. So they said that the next option would have to be, I would have to get an LVAD. I would eventually have to have a heart transplant. But for the way that they needed to get the LVAD in me would be open heart surgery. And when they would be in there, they would actually be able to remove the clot physically take the whole clot out and then put the pump into my heart to assist that part of my heart that's now failed with its function. But that LVAD would be a bridge to eventual transplant. So for those that don't know what an LVAD is, walk us through that. So they have an LVAD and they have an RVAD. So L for left, R for right. So in my case, with my heart failing, my heart wasn't at a capacity of performance where it was terrible, but it was enough that it needed help. So what they do is they insert a pump, medical grade, of course, like they break open your sternum, like a normal open heart surgery, they break open your sternum, they go into your heart, they remove whatever they needed to remove, and then they insert a pump that is powered and <laughs> wired through your abdomen. So they put the pump in the heart, there's a power cord that goes through the middle part of my belly all the way to the right part of my abdomen. And then there's a hole that the cord comes out of that it goes into the wall. So it needs to be powered. So it's a literally DC plug that comes out of my body that's plugged into the wall. And so I'm plugged into a 12 foot cord that is powering me 24 seven. If I don't have the power, I die. If the pump stops, it could cause another clot. I could die. I could have a stroke. I'm on blood thinners. So they have to make sure that the viscosity of my blood is thin. So nothing's getting clogged or caught into that pump. And then when I'm not plugged in and I need to go to the doctor or to go out, 
I'd have to be plugged into batteries. So I'd be constantly walking around with VHS sized batteries about that big on both sides, which is about eight hours of time. And I'd constantly be at risk for electrocution. I'd constantly be at risk during showers. I couldn't be out in rain. I couldn't do anything physical. They told me I would never ride my bike again because of the risk involved. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with blood thinners, but those for you who are very knowledgeable about eating well, plants, obviously, you can't eat healthy when you're on that because if you have too much vitamin K, which obviously you know way more than me, but if you eat like your really green leafy vegetables, you're going to clot blood. And if I eat that, even too much of it, it makes my blood so thick that it could clog up my pump. So I couldn't really eat healthy. Like I couldn't be proactive with my health during that time. So literally, I was a prisoner to my own condition. I could not try to better myself in any way. Like I couldn't put strain on my heart when it comes to even just physical exercise. I would just walk. I would just walk around the block a billion times. I would walk around a park a billion times. I would go to malls and look for stairs just to walk upstairs and do whatever I could to keep myself in condition because I knew at some point I would need to have a heart transplant. I didn't know when, but I knew that I would have to have one. And all the while, I mean, you're walking around, you're longing to do these things, some sort of physical activity, like you just described, walking the stairs at the mall, just everything. But all the while in your mind, you're like, I would imagine someone don't, please don't bump into me. Please don't like, there's all these things, these factors that can't have water spill on you by accident. Yeah. Like, yep. It just nothing. You can't have any sort of disruption to that device or else you could die. So, I mean, it's no joke. Unplugged, water like you described. Like showers, you should see the shower situation. Like I literally had this bag that I would have to put it in and then I would use press and seal that you seal your, <laughs> your leftovers over this little port area where I would constantly have to change every day. My little brother, who's four years younger than me, like I said before, he was in charge of changing my dressing every two days. So my little brother ended up becoming my caretaker in that regard. So I'm being the big brother and my little brother literally keeping me alive, which doesn't feel great as the responsibility of a big brother, in addition to constantly living at risk. And like, you can't control anything. Like right now, look at right now when it comes to people like just wearing masks and trying to find some level of accountability. Like imagine then when everything was not guarded, was not controlled and putting myself in that position, I really couldn't go out. Like I intentionally would choose when I would go out. I would be very specific of the times of days. I wouldn't go to certain places. Literally, I felt like I was in a prison. And then they told me I couldn't ride my bike anymore that I fully became in love with. Like I got into mountain biking at the time. I was just trying to get off the road to be more safe. I'm like, the second I had freedom, like they just took everything that I had at that point. They took everything I had. And a lot of people would ask me, like, how do you constantly maintain your mindset during this process? And I'm sure a lot of you people out there are wondering. But let me tell you, like, what really helped me then, and I use this every day of my life, is that it wasn't cancer. It wasn't chemotherapy. And I'm lucky enough to have that experience before all of this to say that I've been through worse because I have cancer, in my opinion, is the worst out of the three. Well, you guys might think that having a heart transplant is pretty insane. But if you think about it, like... Everything that I had leading up to the heart transplant prepared me for having the heart transplant. Nothing that I had was brand new. Like I knew a lot of people who within the zipper club <laughs> that have different experiences. And I'm lucky enough to say that I've had it twice, but I've experienced what it felt like to have my chest broken for the first time. So you're on the LVAD and I mean, what do they say to you? Is this like, hey, Mike, you're going to be on this for the rest of your life? Or is this, hey, 
we're going to get you a new heart. You're on the heart transplant list. So let's deal with this as long as you can. What were your options at that point? So there's a lot of pieces involved. So I decided because I started actually getting used to it. I'm like, I will live with the LVAD as long as I can. And until they say that the heart just won't work anymore and the LVAD's not going to help, then I will go whatever and do whatever they tell me to do. Like I was prepared. It was miserable, but I'm like, fuck, if this is what I have, I'd rather be here in this capacity than not at all. And so I would literally constantly do what I can to just keep my fitness because there was a couple of stories that I read that people were able to reverse the effects of heart failure and they were actually able to get their LVAD taken out and not need it anymore. Because a lot of times in great case scenarios, the pump would actually strengthen the heart. If the heart was able to receive that kind of physicality, it would actually strengthen it. And in some cases, you don't need to have the LVAD and your heart goes back to normal, if not better. So that was what I was hoping on. I was like, all right, look, I'm going to do what I can. Whatever vegetable I can have, I'm going to have. Whatever I could do to put myself in a position to be in the best candidate for a heart or to get this out, I'm going to do it. And I remember, I think I had a post on January 4th where I said, I'm going to list myself a year from January 4th, so 2018. But they told me in the beginning that it was a bridge for transplant. So I knew the transplant word, the transplant concept had to be happened. It's going to happen. I knew at some point I would need it. So what ended up happening was I was just laying in bed one day and I remember hearing and feeling just like a click in my chest. Like something's wrong. Like, what is this? And I already had a blood draw scheduled for that day. So I'm like, you know what? Why don't I just go upstairs, see my cardiologist and see what's going on? Maybe they could take a look at my blood, maybe something or maybe just give me a quick x-ray. I don't know. And they eventually saw that in my blood, my LDH level was up, which signifies that there are clots somewhere. There's a clot somewhere within my body. Great. Here we go again. And so I immediately get admitted. And during this time, they were focusing on trying to get the clot where it was and to get that level where they felt comfortable for me to leave. And then while I was there going through all these tests, they're like, while we're doing this, we're going to get you prepared to be listed for the transplant. You can't just be listed for the transplant. There's a scenario that you have to be in in order to be lucky enough to be in that position. Yeah, there's certain protocols. You can't be too healthy, but you can't be too weak, right? Correct, exactly. So lucky enough for me, <laughs> lucky enough, by me living with an LVAD, being in the hospital, they said that looked better than being home with an LVAD, not in the hospital. So I ended up getting on 1A list because they ended up finding that the clot was inside the pump. So they had to remove the LVAD no matter what. It was either going to be me getting another LVAD, so another open heart surgery, just to replace the hardware that I had, or we're going to move forward for a heart. So I was on the list no matter what. I ended up getting status 1A, and I was in the hospital from January 22nd to February 24th, waiting for a heart. So let's talk about the 24th, because that's a significant day. You've been on the list, as you mentioned. And it's looking like it might not happen. The nurses begin to process discharge for you to essentially go home and hope for the best, right? Yep. But something changed. Walk me through what changed that oh, day. Man, like, so like while I was waiting for the heart, I was still walking. Like I said, I was putting my position to be in the best shape possible. And I was just going crazy. I'm like, I see all these people coming in. I see all these people going out, getting hearts. I'm like, where's mine? <laughs> like, it sounds crazy to think, but it's like, what about mine? There's people that are getting it. Yeah, like each of the rooms were being replaced constantly. Like you see when they're cleaning a room and I would be walking with my pole, with my IV, whatever they had me on. And I had my two poles. I had my IV pole and then I had my LVAD pole. 
because I would use the LVAD pole to hold my batteries while I would just walk around the hallway. So when you're on 1A status, you get 30 days in that status, and then you have to reapply. So literally, as we were coming to the 24th, I think I was on the last day of eligibility or very close to my last day of eligibility in that status. And if they drop you, you have to restate your case to get back into status. And if not, then you're just not in as worse shape as you thought, which just could take longer to get your heart. So the day that they told me, the 24th, I got a call. No, I'm sorry. I spoke with my doctors and they're like, right now, it seems like that you're going to go home. So we're going to have the nurse work with your discharge papers and we're going to get you going. Congratulations. So immediately when I hear that news, I'm packing up, flying around my room, like whatever capacity I had, I'm like, I'm packing up. And by the time my ex-girlfriend would be coming back, like, I'll be ready. I'm ready to go. (laughs) Before she even got there, I ended up getting a call. She said, Mr. Cohen, we have good news and bad news. I'm like, let's hear it. (laughs) She's like, what do you want first? I'm like, bad news. She's like, you're not going home. Tears immediately went to my eyes. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. She's like, good news is we found you a heart. So I'm like, oh. (laughs) So at that point, when you hear those words, you have no idea what's going on. This is not Christmas. This is not getting a job. I've never had a baby, so I don't know what that means. (laughs) It's not getting a puppy. (laughs) But it's the feeling of like, I think I'm going to be okay. At least that idea sounds like I'm going to be better than I was. But what they tell you, every nurse that comes in you, they say, do not expect anything until you wake up with the heart in your chest. Like there's so many pieces of that puzzle that have to fit perfectly in order to get your heart. So then I was going on a walk. They took my height again. They made sure my height was right. Like I couldn't move again. They didn't want me to get out of bed. They're like pee now because you don't know the next time you're going to be able to get up again. And so I had a couple of my friends come in. My ex-girlfriend was there. Her family was there. A bunch of my friends were there. And we played Nintendo 64. We were playing Super Mario Kart and some gold knives. I think I saw that photo. Yeah. I saw a photo of you <laughs> laying in the hospital and you've actually got the controller. I mean, everything coming out of your body. People should go on your website and check that out, by the way. The pictures are just really tie this together. But <laughs> I mean, sure. it must have been incredibly exciting and frightening at the same time. I mean, because you, you're not guaranteed to make it out of an open heart surgery. You could go in there and not come out, right? A hundred percent. And they tell you too, that the way that it works, for those of you who don't know, the heart has to be perfect. And like perfect, like that person has your body besides your face and your mind. <laughs> like it has to fit like a glove. There can't be a single concern from the receiving team. Also, the way it works is that you go under the knife, they remove your heart, and they put you on a machine to keep you alive until the heart arrives. So you could be sitting there for an hour, two hours, three hours while the heart's coming in, and there's not a heart in your body, and you're still out and blood circulating, keeping everything else working. But it's scary. It's really scary. It was the second time I went under. The first time they told you to count to 10 and you'd never get to 10. <laughs> this time was the same thing. They asked me what music I wanted to play. I played Radiohead. I was introduced to like all of the doctors. Like, you know, we got you. Here's your surgeon. My name's this. My name's that. I'm like, just keep me in one piece, please. <laughs> and you woke up the next day, though. I mean, you go in, right? You get it taken care of. And you wake up with a new heart in your chest you're out for a full day after the surgery. Like you're still under anesthesia. It's pretty heavy stuff. I supposedly woke up. I remembered a glimpse of waking up, but I don't remember anything said or anything else. But I remember waking up and seeing where I was and I was alive to remember that. But I wasn't conscious enough to remember that I was alive. I just remember that feeling. And when you wake up, 
you're in ICU, you're tied up. Like you're hooked to like 15, 16 machines. Every aspect of your body is being monitored. It's really scary. You're hopped up on drugs. You still feel a hole in your chest, 100%. I don't care what everybody says. I definitely felt it. I helped my father recover from an open heart surgery, but that was back in the 80s. So he, he's part of the zipper club. He's got the zipper from here, and then they did the leg all the way down to his ankle. So I'm familiar with a little bit of the recovery. And again, that was back in the 80s. That's a long time ago. And a lot has changed since then in, in medicine, thankfully. But I can recall his recovery taking months. I mean, heck, when he came home, he was still had a hospital bed that he laid in. He wasn't able to get up and move around on his own. It was a lot of caution for infections. I mean, just everything, right? What was it like when you woke up and how was your road to recovery? I mean, was it long like that or were you feeling different once you had the new heart in your chest? I was more scared of not having an immune system. So for those who don't know, like when you have a heart transplant, they don't put you in a normal hospital room. They put you in a, I think it's a negative oxygen room, I think is what they call it. So pretty much in order to come into my hospital room, you would have to go into a room first. You'd have to put a mask on, you have to put gloves on. And then once you open up the door, the air comes out. So if any infection is airborne, it's very unlikely for it to come into the room with you. So I was really afraid about like the whole mask wearing thing all the time. Because they say that like when you go from LVAD to transplant, you exchange batteries and blood thinners for no immunity and medication for the rest of your life. I'm like, all right, I'll take it. Recovery afterwards in the hospital was slow, but I was doing what I could. Like I got up when they told me to get up. I was really angry because I ended up having a little bit of a setback that really messed with my head a lot. I think I had a, an infection that was causing rejection. And it was sourced out of a port that I had in my arm. I think it was like right here. And they said that they might have to reset my immune system. It's not a very common conversation, but when they reset your immune system, they give you chemotherapy. They told me they want to give me chemotherapy. <laughs> I heard those words and I shut down. I'm like, I'm not doing this. I'm like, I'll wait. I'm like, I'm not going through chemotherapy again because I don't know what kind of damage it's going to do for this heart. I'm like, I'm not doing it. And so <laughs> I literally got down the morning of the day for that appointment. I get into the room. They check my numbers. They're like, you don't need to be here. Like Your numbers went up this morning. The morning of the numbers went to the point where they did not have to do that procedure. And my entire attitude changed. I think I went home like a day after. And I immediately started walking around the block back to my park where I used to do my exercises. And it was slow. I'm not going to lie. I mean, it wasn't months of recovery. It was... Overall months of recovery to feel like I was confident, like standing on my feet again, balance wise, took a couple months, but I was able to go to cardiac rehab in like probably July or August. And I got discharged in June. Oh no, no, my God, March, March, I got discharged. I was doing my own exercises. And then I'm like, you know what? Let me be seen by a professional while I'm doing this. And let me start lifting under the eye of a supervisor because the entire time you're going through cardiac rehab, you have an EKG on you the entire time. So they have your heart rate and someone's watching it the entire time. You're not going to have a you know mistake unless they're not paying attention. You know, I was the youngest person in the room. Everybody's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, you don't want to know. I'm like, trust me. Like, I wish I was your age in your condition. <laughs> people don't think about that part. But uh, I was 33 at the time. I'm like, what am I doing here? And I know a lot of people that of my age or similar to my age would not go to cardiac rehab because everybody else was older. I'm like, I didn't care. I'm like, I know I need to be here. And that's important because if your doctor says you should do it, you should do it. Just saying. Um, <laughs> that's a whole other subject. But yeah, I feel like But like, it was just like, 
I started doing it. I started going to cardiac rehab and I noticed in the corner of the room, there was a stationary bike. I'm like, all right, I'm not going to go on that bike for a while. Like I'm going to stick to the elliptical, the arm cycle thing, a treadmill with some incline. I got to the point where I'm like, I asked the physical therapist, I'm like, so could I go on the bike? She's like, yeah. She's like, your numbers are fine. She's like, it's up to you. She's like, you know, do as much as you feel comfortable. And so I readjusted the seat. You know, I was doing my fit. <laughs> Not that it was anything crazy. It was just like a Kaiser. It probably felt good just to do that, though. Oh, my God. It was just the idea of throwing my leg over the saddle again. I'm like, oh. <laughs> and then, like, so I get on it. And I think I was on for three minutes. I'm like, I could do this. I could do this again. And so I got home that day. And I'm like, I got to get back on the bike. How am I going to do this? And then I emailed my transplant team. I'm like, is there any way that I'd be able to use a stationary bike at home? They're like, yeah, of course. As long as it's stationary, you can't go out yet. I'm like, okay. So we ended up getting one of those trainers. And I didn't have a bike because I sold all my bikes before because they told me I would never ride my bike again. <laughs> and <laughs> so my brother had a hybrid that was my size. I'm like, you know what? is it cool if I just use this, you know, for training? He's like, of course. He's like, you don't have to ask. So I put it up there. I started getting the bike. I'm like, okay. I'm like, I can do this. I, again, got more confirmation. I'm like getting that bug again. I'm like, okay. But then in the back of my head, I'm like day by day. I'm like, just one step at a time. Keep doing what you're doing. Every time you go to the doctors, they say no news is good news. Let's keep those no news is good. And I remember the day when I was at the point in my recovery of it, just finished cardiac rehab. And I'm like, so could I get back on the bike? They're like, yeah. They're like, you just got to be careful. Don't do anything crazy. Just try to, as much as you can to be safe. So I just rode around my block, just getting back on the bike. And I fell more and more in love with it. And I'm like, you know what? I need to do something with this. And that was when I started really putting my head together. I got the letter from James's family. Let's back up a second and yeah, talk yeah. about that. <laughs> because that's a really integral part of this whole story here. Now, when you receive an organ donation, it's not protocol to know who the donor was or who the family of the donor is, right? I mean, that's usually an agency between the two sides that handles that. So the agency that did handle this transaction, we'll call it, I suppose, leaves the door open for each party to communicate should they wish to. And as you just mentioned, you receive a letter from the mom of the person who now you have their heart in your chest, right? What was that letter like? What was that tone? And what was your mindset when you read that? Well, once I knew I needed a heart, I knew I wanted to establish a relationship with the family. I knew it wasn't a guarantee. They all told me that we don't expect anything. You don't know what these families are going through. And I fully respect that. You know, I'm a very big family person. I don't want to be intrusive in any way or to make anybody feel uncomfortable. That's not what I'm going to do. Yeah. Cause I mean, they're dealing with, Oh my God, a like, tragedy. Yeah. And like, who knows what they went through to, and that person went through, like, who knows? You don't know. And some people will never know. And so I knew that. And so what I did was they told you, wait six months. And after six months, that's when you can initiate contact. So I wasn't planning on writing anything. I'm like, let me just collect all my thoughts at this point in my life just to, because I was a writer anyway. I mean, I did a lot of writing just for the sake of journaling and blogging and so forth. I really enjoyed to share my experience through words. So I just started writing some ideas here and there, but nothing composed, nothing in the format of a letter or email. And a couple of weeks later, I get a call from the social worker, our transplant coordinator. She's like, you have a letter. And I was nervous. I'm like, oh my God, like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not ready for this. Like, and my parents were actually moving from Florida at the time to move full time to San Diego to be with my brother and me. And they just moved into town. So they moved in on, I think it was the first of April. 
and they were theirs because I wanted them to be there because I got it. And I'm like, I'm going to wait until my mom and dad are there and I'm going to read it in front of them. And so I read it in front of them and I ended up finding out that my heart donor's name was James, James Mazzuccelli. He was a Navy flight surgeon in the U.S. Navy, and he would also work with the Marines whenever they would need him. And he was stationed at Camp Pendleton, and there was a horrific accident that ended up happening while he was doing a training exercise with a helicopter. Then I started noticing on my Instagram feeds and everything, the last name Mazzuccelli starting to follow me and stuff. And, you know, I just thought back to myself, I'm like, I want to meet you. Like, I want to meet them. So I wrote back, and she told me about her experience with that company we were talking about, like being in the middle. They really didn't help her very well. And in fact, she said that she had a really difficult experience with them. So what she ended up doing was somehow, which I won't explain, I'm not going to explain it because that's a little secret, but she found out about me before I received their son's heart. I don't know how that's possible, but <laughs> they found out about me and my situation and they sent a letter as a kind of like a, I guess like a test to see if it was me. And it was me. And they said that leading up to finding out if it was me, they would watch my podcast. They would watch my videos. They would follow my Instagram stories because I was helping them so much with how I was living with the heart that I was living with. They said, they're like, you made us wish that it was you. We didn't know if it was for sure you, but we hoped it was you if it was you. And that's what they said to me directly. I'm sure they found a lot of comfort in that. I mean, knowing that a piece of their son was still alive and seeing it through you and your actions and your eyes and your voice. And man, that just had to be gripping to be on her side of the chalk. So let's pivot a little bit. So you've communicated with the mother. She sent you a letter and you've obviously communicated back. You guys are now in a dialogue and you kind of teased us a little bit with, hey, you know, I'm kind of prepping. I'm riding a little bit. What's next for you? Do you have plans to go visit her, I imagine, to go face to face and meet the person? No. So originally my plan was just to visit the grave. So I didn't know where he was. I mean, I was expecting to be honest with you with it being in with me and the heart. So like, just to kind of go back, I'm sorry if I'm going back, but typically the protocol to receive a heart is that the heart has to be within three hours travel distance. So you can't go too far North. You can't go too far West and you can't go South and you can't go West. So your chances are smaller to get a heart. And also typically the hearts are local to where you're getting your heart transplant. When I found out that I got the heart, I didn't expect the heart to be in Florida or where he lived to be in Florida. I was expecting it to be maybe like a local situation. And I would ride LA. I would ride maybe, like I said, three hours east of San Diego, something that's nothing crazy. And when I heard that it's in Jacksonville, I'm like, wow. That's right. a little further than I planned. Yeah, yeah. I know this route. Yeah, exactly. And so the first thing I asked was her permission. I'm like, I'm going to ride to the grave, but I would love your blessing. I would love your permission to it. And if you would like to meet, I am willing to figure out whatever scenario works best for you. You live in Florida. You've buried him in Florida. I don't want to change anything up or mix anything up or make anything difficult. So I'll just come to you and I'll ride and I just want to honor him. I want to honor him. I don't want to meet you and obviously embrace and honor you as well. And it stayed stickly within text messages, Facebook messages, emails. We never spoke on the phone. We wanted to keep that for when we met in person. And we did. We didn't speak until the day of. Just the planning was beautiful because I was trying to get sponsorships. And lucky enough for me, I had the previous ride as my resume. 
Because <laughs> it's like when people say they're going to ride across the country, not everybody does it. And if you do do it, it's like that's your resume to say you've done it. <laughs> so I put everything together and I just wanted to put together a way for, for her, of course, it was a gift to her. It was a gift to the family. It was a bigger picture I wanted to show and hopefully break the ice for other recipients and their families to maybe bridge that gap and maybe establish even a further distance at the minimum of communication. I just wanted to maybe get other transplant patients of all transplants, heart, lungs, kidneys, whatever, to know that these stories exist and it's worth to pursue it if it's important to you. And that's what I wanted to get from all of it. I mean, shine a light on, because I mean, when people think of organ donation, they don't... It's scary. It's a scary thought. It's not something you want to go, yeah, I'll do that, because then it puts your mind in a place, oh my gosh, I'm dead, they're harvesting my organs. But by you doing this and making a cause to ride across the country on your bike and show, look, I'm a recipient. I'm alive because someone did check that box. People pay attention to that. It's important. You can save a life. And in James's case, 11 lives. You're one of them. So this ride is different, obviously. It's the second time across the country. And you already know it's no joke. I mean, this is a serious thing to do. But your body's different now. I mean, there has to be certain protocols that you have to adhere to. I mean, you need to sign off from your doctor. I mean, I would imagine heart rates can't get above a certain level, time, endurance, infections, He's already mentioned that your immune system is vulnerable at all times, rejection of the heart constant. The planning had to be intense to prepare for even something this major. Walk me through that. Were the doctors like, yeah, no problem. Or like, listen, Mike, this is different now. They were very encouraging. What they told me, or at least one of my doctors told me, was the reason why they fully signed off on it is because they saw how compliant I was. Like every single thing they told me to do, I'm like, you tell me what I need to do to get better, I'm going to do it. So when I started creating the route, I distinctly made the route to be able to go through major cities where there were heart transplant centers in the worst case scenario. We had an RV, so we would be the only people that I would be constantly in physical contact with. It was myself, my little brother, and my best friend, and my dog. The logistics were actually easier than you would think, just for the sake of location, because it was just like, we just needed to ride. And so I take medication every day, of course. But at the time, I couldn't eat, so I would have to take pills at 9, and then I wouldn't be able to eat until 10. So for normal ride prep, you typically have to drink a lot of water, eat a lot of food, digest before you go on a long ride, like I did previously, and I wouldn't be able to leave until like 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock sometimes. So we really wouldn't be able to ride that much. And the route that we took, I was riding with a newer rider, so I didn't want to constantly be riding in traffic. I didn't want him to... (laughs) be turned off to the situation. Like we made a lot of adaptations to make it more safe. I mean, we didn't ride the 2,600 miles it is. We rode, I think it was like 1,600 miles out of it just because of the sake of safety. Oh, just 1,600? Yeah, just 1,600. <laughs> yeah. yeah, in my head, it's, well, it's a small ride with 3,100. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's half. And I didn't hit a century. But anyway, <laughs> no, it was just more like just, like you said, maintaining everything, like heart rate, not pushing too hard. My max heart rate at that point was maybe 145. And I was scared to go above it. But like, here's the thing. It's like, you determine your max heart rate. I didn't realize that. But obviously with me being so monitored, I wanted someone to tell me what that was. You know, I would just ride to that max every time. And I think the max ride I had out of the ride was like 72 miles. Which for me is like, you know, when you're a long distance rider, like 72, ah, blah, blah, blah. And especially when the last ride, you've done 10 separate 
hundred mile rides. I think I did 10 centuries, my last ride. And I did like five in a row with like one stretch of the last ride. And then this ride, it's like, I'm doing like 45, I'm doing 60 and doing 50. But again, like the biggest goal was to get there in one piece, all three of us, no accidents. I didn't want to have to go to the hospital. Like, I don't care how slow it took me. Cause I'm like, slower is safer at that point. And there's a lot less that can go on when you're not flying down the road. And we had tons of flats just logistics wise, weather was perfect. It rained a couple times. That's okay. Cause I don't have any cords anymore. I mean, overall it was just logistics of like organizing posts, organizing media conversations, because I didn't want to over exploit the situation of James's family because they had a bad experience. My fitness was more ride specific this time than overall strength. I gained a lot of my strength back being on the ride, at least leg wise. And it wasn't a crazy things going on kind of ride because, like I said, everything was kind of slow. But it was such a good experience to like go through and tell someone, like, hey, what are you doing riding on the road? Oh, I'm riding to go meet my heart donor's family. What? <laughs> so you're able to share the story with passerbyers as you go on, but out of respect for the family, you kept it on the down low. And that's the right thing to do because your best day was their worst day. And it's bigger than that. You're not doing it for that reason. You're not doing it because, hey, look at me. You're doing it because, as we touched on earlier, you're trying to bring awareness to this cause and then go give them some, I would imagine, a sense of closure, some comfort. It's bigger than you. It's not a look at me scenario. So you've accomplished the ride. It's, I believe I read somewhere, November 20th, 2019. You're now in Jacksonville. And you're pedaling the last few miles to the destination, which is the cemetery where James is laid to rest to meet his parents for the first time. What was going through your mind? I mean, that had to be just overwhelming emotions pumping through your body. Yeah, yeah, it was because, I mean, it was more like it was so close. We were really close to where the cemetery was, so it wasn't a big ride. I think it was like a 10-mile ride. And so that would typically would take us an hour, and the both of us were like on it. We were flying. And the whole time, I tried not to think of the last day of the ride, because I didn't want it to end because I really enjoyed what I was doing. When that last day came, I remember riding down the road and seeing the sign Jacksonville National Cemetery. And that's when it hit me. And then like once we made that turn to go on the road of the cemetery, I was completely in tears the entire time. And like I was talking to him and I asked my friend, I'm like, could you just ride ahead or behind me? I'm like, I need to have some time for myself. Who prepares you for that encounter? The closure that it gave to me was, I know I'm in the right place. I know I'm doing the right thing. But like you just said, exactly like you just said, my best day of my life was their worst. And I'm willing to be that doormat if they needed to me to be, if they needed to cry me, if they needed to yell at me, they needed to hit me. Like whatever they needed to do, I would have been that for them. And when I rode into the cemetery, we didn't see them initially, but we saw like, I think it was his uncle that was out in like, let's call it like a couple thousand feet from the entrance of the cemetery. And then he just pointed to go to left. And then I saw the crowd. I saw his mom. I saw his stepdad. I saw his, his stepsister. And then a bunch of his other relatives. And you know, so I ride up. I get off my bike. <laughs> and the first thing I said to her was hi. And I just walked over to her and just gave her a massive hug. And I told her I'm sorry. And I'm like, he's home. He's here. He's where he needs to be. And I'm really grateful that you proved me to do this and let me do this. That's emotional. I mean, even hearing you, I read the story and we talked a little bit before this and just hearing you talk about it now is emotional for me even. And 
I did read the latest write-up about this story, and I saw the image of James's mother with the stethoscope and put it on your chest and listening to her son's heartbeat. I mean, that picture, it tells a thousand stories. I mean, it's just emotional. So I recommend everybody read that story, look at those images, let that sink in, and really understand what you did and what this family did for you. What an incredible, compassionate journey to make, Mike. I mean, we're going to have to wrap this thing up. I would love to talk to you all day. I feel like we have a lot of synergy and your story is just absolutely incredible. But before we close this thing out, do you have anything else you'd like to add to this? Perhaps some words of motivation for people out there hearing this story for the first time? Absolutely. Well, I mean, one of the things that I like to always think about is like, how can I connect with people? We all come from a background of something. And what we're seeing right now in our current society is a lot of depiction of privilege and a spotlight on certain things and a shadow and a hiding of certain things. And one of the things that I like to make sure of, because I hate politics, I hate them, but it's real. And unfortunately, what I like to really dig down to people is that we are all the same. And what I mean that is that no matter what color, no matter what religion, no matter what background you come from, you've been through shit, okay? Any level of shit. I don't care what it is. Divorce. You've lost someone in your life. You've had a health issue. You've had to make a drastic change in your life. Whether it was something that you wanted to do or you didn't want to do. You have something that you know in the back of your mind has or does hold you back from being the best person you could be, from letting love in, from letting appreciation, compliments, positivity. Some people are just automatically angry. Like I know some people that really could use some love. And the whole foundation of what I'm saying is that we all come from some sort of adversity. And why don't we use that adversity as our motivation to be different than other people? And instead of just being different, you could actually be a part of a community with that adversity. And I feel that that's part of what we're seeing right now is the lack of compassion for individuality of just being who we are. Like I changed because I wanted to change. And also I changed because of what I've experienced. They all influenced me to make and act and choose to be a certain way. And I could have been negative. I could have taken all the experiences that I had and just keep them all to myself and not try to share what I've learned. And the reality is you are enough. You have everything that you need to succeed. You have everything you need to improve. And if I could make the change, if I can make the sacrifices, if I could look at death in the eye on three separate occasions, I look at constant uncertainty in my life, career-wise, financial-wise, so many times that I can't even explain to you. I know what it's like. You know what it's like. We all know what it's like at some point. And all we got to do is use what we've been through as a way to connect and to just see people eye to eye. You realize how lucky you have it with what you've been through. Because as much as you're looking at my story, you're looking like, wow, look what he's been through. No offense, but I don't want to go through what you went through. I don't think you want to go through what I went through. And you don't need to go through a heart transplant, a heart attack, and cancer by the age of 35 to make changes in your life. Please don't let it go to that point. (laughs) Just be proactive. Be on top of your health. Be on top of, if doctors tell you to do something, do it. If someone tells you to wear a mask in a public place, it's not only because of yourself, it's because of other people that might be ill and you don't know they're ill. We have to take care of each other. And at the end of the day, use your adversity, use the things that have previously held you back in your life 
as a catalyst to make you different and make you realize how special and how amazing you actually are. That's beautiful, my friend. Well said. Thank you for that. You're an amazing human, my Cohen. You really are. And we all can learn from you and find a way to live life with a little more sense of purpose. Your story is one of courage, determination, kindness, and gratitude. It's absolutely beautiful. And I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to share your story. Thank you. My pleasure. It's an absolute honor to be on. All right, everyone. That was Mike Cohen. Please be sure to check out my show notes for links to learn more about his story. Trust me, you want to read it. You want to experience it. And follow him on Instagram. He's a fun follower. He's got some pretty interesting (laughs) stories going on. Until next time, everybody. Peace, love, and plants.